Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. It's turning pages here on River Radio. We've all the latest news and views on books. And a special audio book delight for you all, Treasure Island. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. So, good morning, Julian. How was your holidays? Oh, good morning, Heather. It was wonderful, thank you. I had a, a fortnight um, in uh, between Austria and Italy. It Ooh. was very nice indeed and very hot. Ooh, sounds sounds <laughs> lovely. So, what books were you reading on your holiday sojourn? Well, I took a, um, a book called A Southwold Mystery by Suzette A. Hill, uh, published by um, Alison and Busby. Oh, that sounds and it's, good. Yeah, and it's set in that wonderful um, uh, Suffolk coastal town of Southwold, set in the 1950s, a murder that occurs at a flower festival. Oh, and in, oh. in fact, I'm getting quite, I was getting myself in the mood because I'm going to spend a few days, another little holiday in September in Southwold. So oh, I'm excellent. Getting myself in the mood for that, not exactly for the murders, of course, but. Um, yeah. So Alison and Busby actually do quite a good range of sort of cosy crime novels, they do, don't yes, they? Yes, they're really excellent. I mean, they've got the museum murder series. They've also got uh, murders in hotels. Oh, yes. It's very good. It's, yeah. it, and it is. It's a nice, comfortable one. Yeah. And what have you been up to? Well, have you I've, been doing something recently? <laughs> well, I've not been doing much reading apart from reading for my essay, yes. of course. But I did meet up with uh, a good friend of mine for coffee recently and found out that she was involved in a charity called Calibre Audio, which is a national charity which I didn't know about, which provides a completely free for life audio book service to everyone who's got a disability that makes reading um, print difficult. So, of course, you think of the... Um, being blind but of course Mm. there's also lots of other people say if you're in a hospital with a bad back or something Mm. and you can't carry a a book Mm. then of course then you do need audiobooks well it sounds a really amazing service so i know i will be speaking to somebody from the charity later on so i'm looking forward to that that'll be in a few weeks time no that sounds really worthwhile charity that sounds excellent sounds really good so at turning pages we believe that great books aren't just on the bestseller list so we aim to entice you into this wonderful world of books and we do hope you enjoy the show today Yes, indeed. And we've got a, a really good programme for you uh, in store this morning. And um, we have uh, a special audio classic to share with you, courtesy of Baker Street Press and Real Reads. And it's the retelling of Robert Louis Stevenson's classic adventure, Treasure Island. And it's read by the actor Chris Humphreys. Now, if you don't already know Baker Street Press and Real Reads, it's, uh, they're companies that you should really get acquainted with, I think, because the company produces miniature masterpieces which transform the classics into short, easy reads that 
everyone can enjoy. So they're really quite good um, uh, introductions, and then you can go on to read the full novel if you wish. Now, Heather, um, you'll be chatting to Mike Bryan later. Um, he's the publisher of the company, mm-hmm. and I know you'll be chatting in more detail about the books. We will indeed, and of course, Treasure Island. But to start the show, as always, we have been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. So let's just start up with this quick round of book stories. And Julian, what have you seen? spotted what's caught your eye well i spotted this rather interesting one it was an article about tasers which is the weapon of choice um by um uh, police forces throughout the world particularly in the in the uk but interestingly tasers were um invented in the 1970s but they weren't really introduced to the british police force until about 2003 and they work um, by firing a dart connected to a handset causing an electric shock so the dart sort of hits the uh, the the yeah. um, unwitting recipient and gives them a shock and brings them to the floor now it appears that the name Taser is a loose acronym for Tom Swift and his Electric Rifle, which was a novel published in, can you believe, in 1911. Wow, the, that's yeah, incredible. Yeah, very far-sighted. Now, um, the police force seemingly gave Tom Swift a middle name beginning with A to make the word more pronounceable. Oh, right. yeah. Now, the book was written um, by the Stratemeyer Syndicate, which was a publishing house that produced popular mystery stories for children, including Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Oh, very famous. Although I wasn't a yeah. big fan. I think I was more Eenie Blyton, really. Well, I liked Eenie Blyton, but I really did like the Hardy Boys because um, well, because there was the American le- uh, yes. um, um, element to it, so it was always, it was quite exciting um, yeah. and yeah i really enjoyed those excellent uh right now we have said recently that a couple of book prizes have been cancelled recently so it's lovely to see that some book prizes still out there and we've got to say congratulations to edna o'brien for the pleasure of reading prize that's a great prize title isn't it it is so this one is sponsored by the charity give a book which is a reading for pleasure charity who just aim to cultivate and foster a love for reading. So who cannot approve of that? There's a £10,000 annual prize, which is split between the winning author and then one of the various projects that Give a Book, uh, give a book um, have on offer. So obviously the, um, the author can choose which, which project they'd like to support. So congratulations. So Edna O'Brien and the judges described her work as due to her bold, brave and sometimes visionary body of work. She's one of Ireland's most acclaimed living writers and presumably must have been a huge inspiration for Sally Rooney. Um, So um, Edna O'Brien's debut book was The Country Girls and it shocked Ireland in the 1960s with its sexual frankness. She's written more than 20 books and many of them have focused on the inner lives of women and how their fates are shaped by men around them. Now, um, she's also has plays and non-fiction. She wrote her best-selling memoir, Country Girl, in 2012. And her most recent work was a novel called Girl, which was released uh, recently and follows the journey of a Nigerian schoolgirl kidnapped by Boko Haram, a departure from her usual Irish setting, but got really good reviews in the papers. 
Well, I found uh, an article um, which is, uh, and it's all to do with this uh, the school uh, year, which of course has come to an end. Yes. Um, and the summer holidays um, have begun. And an ancient inscription on a marble slab in a museum has just been excitedly identified as a graduate school yearbook. Wow. Now this, yeah. Now the stone has been stored, and I have to say, ignored in the National Museum Scotland collection since the 1880s. And historians now believe. This is an important new source of information about an elite Athenian society in the first century AD. Now, it lists 31 friends who completed the Athenian Iphibate, which was a military, um, a year of military and civic training, which was undertaken by youths aged 18. Now, historians have previously thought that the tablet was just a copy of a similar list to the one that is in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. But last year, a team from Manchester University took a detailed look at the tablet and soon realised it was unique. Now, they identified it was a list of cadets for one particular year during the period of 41 to 54 AD and made to create um, a sense of camaraderie um, for the group of young men who called themselves co-ephibes or co-cadets and friends. So basically, if you, if you will, it was a sort of an ancient equivalent of a yearbook. That's brilliant, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it also yeah. just goes to show what we can get from going back into our archives and re- re-examining all the information we have. Ex- exactly. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, yes, really. And I just find it interesting that this was stored there and some just, you know, forgot it from yes. the 1880s, you know, just left it dumped in a room somewhere up in Edinburgh. <laughs> well, it's like putting something in your loft, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, one of our listeners to Turning Pages, Patrick, spotted a great story in the paper, which I agree is definitely worth sharing with everyone. And this is about a furniture restorer in Cornwall who was looking at a dresser and found at the back of the dresser an RAF logbook of Peter Pease, who was a Spitfire pilot in World War II and was shot down over Maidstone in 1940 during the Battle of Britain. And he was just 22 years old. And uh, the book is, uh, has been valued to up to £700 and it's going to be sold at auction soon. So that was an amazing find. What a mm. slice of history that was. So thanks for that spot, Patrick. And if anyone else has any stories they've spotted about books authors, writing, or just great books you'd like to recommend, then please do let me know. You can email me at heather at river.radio and we'd love to share your thoughts with everyone. We would indeed. Now, so this is Turning Pages on River Radio, your favourite weekly book programme. Now, thank you for listening. And if on, if you've only just uh, uh, joined us, don't worry. You can listen again to any episode of Turning Pages as a podcast um, on your usual po- podcast provider. And all you have to do is search for Turning Pages on River Radio, or you can listen again from our website at river.radio. So coming up in the programme, we have got a delightful treat for us all with a fabulous audiobook courtesy of Real Reads and Baker Street Press. It's a retelling of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm, indeed, indeed. Now, books from Baker Street Press have been described as miniature masterpieces and mike bryan who's the managing director of the company and our guest this morning is part of the team that has produced these treasures now let's listen to to heather chatting to mike about the books mike 
I'm delighted you're here to tell us more about these books. But first of all, obviously, can I just say a big thank you for letting us use a number of your audiobooks on this, on this programme. So not just this one, we have used them in the past and we will coming up in the future. They are fabulous and we really all adore listening to them. I particularly like catching up on some classics I've not read before. So to start off with, can you describe the books, please, for those who don't know them? Yes, of course. They are classics, world classics. They're classics of English literature, American literature, Indian literature, Chinese literature. There's over a hundred titles in, in and they're all distilled I'm going to, say, uh, to 64 pages, long, right. um, which is fantastic. They're nicely illustrated and they're easily digestible. So they're, they're retellings of the stories. They're not abridged, so they've not just got bits cut out. They take the story of the original classic and the writers that we use write the story into 54, uh, 64 pages. Yeah. And, but you can still get a sense that, you know, of the, of the test is Charles Dickens yeah. or the, the persuasion is, is Jane Austen. So you've got some of the, the rhythm and the language and the favourite phrases oh, that these guys absolutely, have Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so you won't be disappointed if you're a Jane Austen. And they are really entertaining. They're aimed at people that really enjoy classics but I probably don't have that much time. So, so that's me then. So yeah, so, so well, ostensibly they're aimed at eight to maybe 16-year-olds. Yeah. But they're great for anybody who wants to become immensely well-read in no time at all. It takes about half an hour, 40 minutes to read one, and, and that's a great benefit, really. Yes, yeah, so we've got, we've got Treasure Island coming up, yeah. and that's 35 minutes, which is perfect, isn't which, it? Which is great, isn't it? It's so, the sort of thing you can read over a cup of coffee. Yeah, and and not many of us actually would sit down and read the whole of Treasure Island now. No, which is, I, I no, I wouldn't. Which is a shame. And we have. A, Although I might be inspired after I've heard this. Well, exactly, and that's the other thing about them. They are designed to inspire you to read the full book if you want to, if you've enjoyed it, which I'm sure you will. Where where do we get them from? Can you just get them from bookshops? So you can get them from your local bookshop. They may not have them in stock, but they can order them in for you if if they haven't got them in stock. I know the Cooper Bookshop. Yeah. Warstones will have them. So they break it the book. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the difference between Real Reads and Baker Street Press editions? Because we keep talking about the, the two brand names. So. Yes. So they well internally very little, but externally quite a bit, I suppose. The real reads are paperback and therefore a bit cheaper. Right. But the Baker Street reader editions are hardback and I guess more collectible. And those are the ones you probably yeah. get from from the bookshop. You can have either edition, it doesn't really matter. It's a couple of pounds more for an hardback, understandably. Yeah. But but you know, it's it's all about collectability as well as readability. Yes. So once you've got them and once you've read them, you want to sort of keep them on your bookshelf yeah. And, yeah. And, and decide whether you're going to read the original version or not. Yeah, and hard hardbacks are much more robust. Looking at that whole list, you said there was sort of a hundred or so yeah. lists. What's some of your favourites, or the ones that you oh, particularly excited about? Gosh, well, I suppose I quite like the science fiction, the oh, yeah. horror sort of ones. Right. So, so we have The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. H.G. Wells, Wells yeah. And then Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, that side of thing. And of course, well... We're going to have Treasure Island, but really do like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is also... Oh, yes, yes. And Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, 
Wow. Now we have that. We've got a copy of that for a later date, I think. It's just the, the tension in that. It's particularly good on audio, I think. Yes. Yeah. The tension in it is, is really spectacular. Fantastic. What are the best sellers? What, what sell particularly well? So, Oliver Twist is our number one bestseller. Okay. Uh, quick, followed quickly by Christmas Carol. So, Dickens is very, very popular. But so is George Orwell, Animal Farm, and 1984, and F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Isn't that interesting? That's very different in style to those others that yeah. you mentioned. Uh, I suppose it's an American classic, isn't it? But, right, but, yes. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's evocative of that 1930s and rich life. Um, and it's. Uh, gets used in schools and it's uh, it's great. I heard you mention that you were saying that lots of school libraries will have the full set yeah. because it just allows youngsters to get that grounding in classics, which is part of our culture really, isn't it? There's lots of references that we don't really appreciate based on our classic yeah. uh, literature. Yes, it, it, it's cultural capital, I think, yeah. is the phrase that we use for it. There. One of our founders in the company spotted that, well, I think somebody told them that the majority of classics that are bought are never read. Oh, no. And the kids in particular were not reading classics. Yeah. And hence, we came up with the idea of producing accessible versions of classics just to get the kids interested in them as soon as possible. I think once once you've got into reading classic them, you love them and will continue to read them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So we're now going to listen to Treasure Island by uh, Robbie Louis Stevenson, retold for Baker Street Press, and read by Chris Humphreys. Ah, Chris. No, you know Chris Humphreys, don't you? I do know Chris Humphreys. He is an author himself. He's an actor and he's an author. And he writes swashbuckling novels. Jack the Jack Absolute. Oh, they're brilliant, aren't they? Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. So he's a famous author himself, but has got such a great It was so lovely, uh, Mike, to uh, listen about your books. But now it is time for us all to sit back and enjoy Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, retold for Baker Street Press and Will Reads, and it's being read by Chris Humphreys. Enjoy. I will never forget the day that the fierce old sailor dropped dead in the dining room of the Admiral Benbow, for it marked the start of my great adventure. When he first came to stay at my mother's inn in the autumn of 1757, he did not give his name, but said that he wished to be known only as the Captain. When the Captain had first arrived, he had given us a few gold coins for his lodgings, taken from his sea chest, which he always kept locked, but for months we had not received a penny more from him. He was a rough, violent man and wore a cutlass at his side, so that when he refused all requests for further payment, we did not choose to quarrel with him. He spent all his time drinking rum and staring suspiciously out to sea through his old brass telescope. The captain seemed nervous of strangers and was always on the lookout for visitors to our inn. One frosty January morning, a visitor arrived inquiring for the old sailor. He was a tall, pale man, dressed in seafaring clothes, with a sword swinging from his belt. We had barely exchanged a few words when our lodger came down for his breakfast. The captain turned pale and gasped. "'Black dog!' said he. "'And who else?' replied the other. 
We've tracked you down at last, Billy Bones, me and your old shipmates. Now it's time for us to have a little talk. You've something we want, and we mean to get it one way or another. I'll send this lad for two glasses of rum. Then we'll get down to business. When I returned with the drinks, I hesitated outside the door of the dining room, trying to overhear the conversation between the two sailors. At first, I could hear nothing but a low gabbling. But at last, the voices began to grow louder, and I could make out the captain's words. No, no, and that's the end of it, he cried. You can whistle for Flint's map, for you'll never have it. And you can tell the rest of his crew they'll get nothing from me. The treasure can stay in the ground for all I care. Then, all of a sudden, I heard the sound of the chair and table going over and the clash of steel. The door burst open and Black Dog rushed out, streaming blood from his shoulder, with the captain hotly pursuing, both with cutlasses drawn. The captain paused at the front door, breathing heavily. Black Dog will be back with the others! He said, help me, my sea chest. He put his hand to his throat, stood swaying for a moment, then fell face foremost to the floor. I turned his body and stared into his sightless eyes. The severe shock, combined with years of heavy drinking, had proved too much for him. Billy Bones was dead. My mother and I found the key to the captain's sea chest hanging round his neck on a piece of string and went up to the little room in which he slept. At the bottom of his battered chest we discovered a small bag of gold coins and my mother, honest as always, counted out the sum that was owed to us by our lodger. Next to it was a packet tied up in oilcloth containing what felt like papers. I took it with me and we went downstairs. We were not a moment too soon. I heard footsteps walking up to the inn and the mumble of conversation. Black Dog had returned with his shipmates. My mother and I slipped out of the back door and hurried down the lane, which led to Squire Trelawney's house a few miles distant. We were sure that the squire would be able to help us. When we arrived at the manor house, we found that Squire Trelawney had his friend with him, our local medical man, Dr. Livesey. We told them everything that had happened. The squire grinned. Black Dog and his friends went away disappointed, I'll be bound. What do you think, Livesey? The doctor nodded. It seems likely. You've heard of this flint that the old sailor spoke of? Heard of him? Squire Trelawney cried. He was the cruelest and most wicked pirate that ever sailed. Blackbeard was a child compared with Flint. And the story is that Flint hid most of his treasure on a Caribbean island where it still lies buried. Now, Jim, my lad, let's see inside that packet you took from the captain's sea chest. I handed over the parcel wrapped in oilcloth and the squire opened it with his pocket knife. Inside was an old notebook, its pages covered with lists of names and figures, evidently payments of some kind. Then, as the squire held up the book, something fell from it. Dr. Livesey opened up the folded paper. As he spread it out on the table in front of him, I gasped. Even a brief glimpse was enough to tell me it was a map of a small island— and a red cross had been drawn upon it, together with the words, The treasure lies here. We gathered round, and for some minutes examined the map carefully. 
The scale at the top showed it to be about five miles long and four miles wide. There appeared to be two fine, land-locked anchorages in the north and south. Not far from the southerly one was a sketch of an enclosure marked as the Stockade, evidently a fortress of some kind. Above the map had been written Treasure Island, 1750. What was more, when the squire turned the map over, we saw that the island's latitude and longitude had been written on the back. Measurements which gave its exact position off the coast of Spanish America and would make it easy for a ship to find. Under these numbers was a further line of writing. Tall tree, spyglass hill, northeast, ten feet. It's a compass bearing, Dr. Livesey cried. If we can get to the island, Flint's treasure will be easy to find. It was soon decided that the squire and Dr. Livesey would prepare an expedition to bring back the treasure. After I had begged for her permission, my mother agreed that I could sail with them as cabin boy. Squire Trelawney went to Bristol in search of a ship, and eventually he found a suitable vessel, the Hispaniola, a schooner of two hundred tons. The squire also recruited an experienced sailor to command the ship, Captain Smollett. The captain had business of his own to attend to, but agreed to join the ship as soon as it was ready to sail. At first, Squire Trelawney had great difficulty in finding a crew until, as he told us, he had the good fortune to meet an old sailor who kept a public house in Bristol and knew all the seafaring men in that port. He wanted a job as a ship's cook, the squire told us, said he was bored with life ashore. The poor man has lost a leg, but he gets around as quick as a wink. Found me a crew in no time. Tough old salts. Not pretty to look at, most of them, but they seem to know their business. Long John Silver, that's the cook's name, has them eating out of his hand. Not long afterwards, when I was visiting the ship, I met Silver myself. His left leg was cut off close by the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain but intelligent and smiling. Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved about among the crew, with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for everyone. He had a pet green parrot, which perched upon his shoulder when it was not in its cage. "'That's a fine bird,' I said, stroking it cautiously. "'And what's its name?' Long John Silver smiled. "'Why, Jim, I call her Captain Flint, after the famous pirate, a wicked man, and long since dead, I'm glad to say.' On hearing her name, the parrot called out with great rapidity, "'Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight!' When we were ready to sail, Captain Smollett joined us. He was happy with the ship— but soon made his feelings known about the crew. "'Silver's all right, I dare say, but I don't care for the others,' he said. "'It's a great shame that I was not asked to choose them. "'I suppose you realise that they all know we're sailing in search of treasure. "'Something like that is impossible to keep secret. "'We must keep a sharp eye on them all during the voyage and look out for trouble.' Captain Smollett's fears seemed to be unfounded— and the long voyage passed without incident. 
Then the day came when Smollett calculated that we were no more than twelve hours sailing away from Treasure Island. When Squire Trelawney announced this to the crew, there was a burst of cheering. Just at that moment, I decided that I would get myself an apple from the open barrel that was kept upon the deck for the crew to use. I looked over the rim and saw that there were only a few left, so I climbed inside and sat down, picked up an apple, and started munching it. Whether it was the darkness and calm of the barrel, or the sound of the waters and the rocking motion of the ship, I could not tell, but the fact was that I soon fell into a doze. As I drifted into sleep, a heavy bump shook the barrel. I guessed that someone had sat down and leaned against it. I was just about to jump up and show myself when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words I was trembling, for from these dozen words I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. Yes, lad, I sailed with Flint, the fiercest captain of them all, and clever with her. I was quartermaster on Flint's old ship, the Walrus. Many's the time I've seen the deck run red with blood, and the hold so full of gold, it's a wonder she didn't sink with the weight of it. Ah, cried another man, you'd have all been rich men after that voyage, if I ain't mistaken. I recognised the other voice. It was Dick, the youngest seaman on board, and he sounded full of admiration. Silver laughed. Yes, them as is sensible, but most are not. You see, buccaneers live rough and risk hanging, so most of them, when they get ashore, like to spend their money until they've lost it all and go to sea again and take their chance. But not me. My money's safely stowed away. My old girls kept it for me, and after this last voyage I'll turn respectable. But come, Dick, you'll keep your thousands close when you get them, I'm sure. Are you with us, lad? The squire's got the treasure map on board right enough. Israel Hans heard him say so with his own ears. Well, I tell you now, Dick replied. I didn't like the sound of it at first, but now we've talked, John. Here's my hand on it. A brave lad you are and smart too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that the barrel shook. And you'll make a fine gentleman of fortune. One thing was very clear to me. I must warn my friends as soon as possible, for we were now in deadly danger. It was not long before I found the squire and told him urgently that I needed to talk with him, Dr. Livesey and Captain Smollett. The three of us went below to the captain's cabin. I told them everything I had overheard. For a moment there was silence, and then Dr. Livesey spoke, tapping his pocket. "'They'll do nothing while I've got the map stowed safely. "'We must bide our time and take action when they least expect it. "'Let us calculate the odds. "'There are us three men and young Jim Hawkins. "'Of course we can rely on Trelawney's gamekeeper, Redruth, "'and the other two servants, Joyce and Hunter. "'That's seven of us.' "'The captain got to his feet. "'And on their side they have Long John Silver, his close friend Israel Hands, and seventeen others, nineteen in all, against six men and a boy. Now, we must return to the deck and look cheerful before anyone gets suspicious. 
I suggest that Squire Trelawney has a quiet word with Joyce and Hunter to let them know what we've discovered. And we should all carry loaded pistols in case the worst happens. The captain's navigation proved accurate, and early the following morning land was sighted. To those of us who had seen the map I took from Billy Bones, it was clear that we had reached our destination. We had arrived off the south coast of Treasure Island, and the entrance to the fine anchorage could be plainly seen. Grey-green woods covered a large part of the surface, broken up by streaks of yellow sand running up from the shoreline. Clumps of tall trees of the pine family were dotted across the island, and Spyglass Hill rose high in the northwest, with naked rock showing above the vegetation at the summit. The Hispaniola sailed into the natural harbour. Captain Smollett gave the order to drop anchor, and we came to rest about a third of a mile from each side of the wide inlet. The heat was sweltering, and the men seemed restless. Sensing the possible danger, the captain announced that any of the crew who wished could have a trip ashore for the rest of the day. Long John Silver spoke quietly to the men, who listened carefully to what he had to say. He turned to Captain Smollett with a cheerful smile. "'That's very generous of you, Captain. Six have agreed to stay. The rest of us will take a turn on the shore, as you suggest.' It was at that moment that a foolish idea came into my head. I decided that I would go ashore with Silver and the others and explore the island. The shore party took two of the large rowing boats, and almost as soon as we were underway, I began to regret my rash decision. Silver was in the other boat and called across to me, "'Is that you, Jim, my boy? I want a word with you as soon as we get ashore.' Our boat passed some shoreside trees, and I leapt up and caught a branch, swinging myself out on it and plunging into the nearest thicket. By the time the two boats had landed, I had raced away out of sight and ran until I could run no longer. I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and swampy trees, inhabited only by a few wild goats. Then I came to a long thicket of evergreen oaks, which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted. As I gazed around me, I caught a glimpse of a sudden movement behind a clump of trees. I put my hand on my pistol. Could it be one of the would-be mutineers? At that moment... A strange figure stepped out from behind a tree, threw himself on his knees, and held out his clasped hands in supplication. I looked at him in amazement. "'Who are you?' I asked. "'Ben Gunn!' he answered, and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward, like a rusty lock. "'I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a living soul for three years.' His skin was burned by the sun, and his clothes were more ragged than any beggar I had ever seen. He soon found that I meant him no harm, and told me his story. "'I was a pirate in Captain Flint's ship, the Walrus, when he anchored off this very island. He went ashore with six strong seamen and the treasure. They were on the island for nigh on a week. Then Flint returned by himself and ordered us to set sail.' 
We knew very well what had happened. Flint had killed every last one of the six shipmates so that his secret would be safe. Flint had a fierce crew, but none were brave enough to ask where the treasure had been hidden. Not even Long John Silver. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. I persuaded the crew to land and search for it. After twelve days, they'd had enough and went back aboard, leaving me marooned on the island. In turn, I explained everything that had happened to me, starting with the discovery of the treasure map. At the mention of Long John Silver, his face turned deadly pale, but he waited until I'd finished before he spoke. "'Here's what I propose,' Ben Gunn said. "'Tell your Dr. Livesey to meet with me at midday tomorrow, here at this spot. "'I have something important to tell him. Uh, "'One more thing. I've made myself a boat of sorts. "'If you need it to return to the Hispaniola, "'it's hidden next to the white rock on the northwest side of the inlet.' "'With that, he ducked back into the foliage and was soon lost from my view.' I guessed that it must now be near noon, the sun being high in the heavens, and I retraced my steps back to the anchorage, thinking that I must return to the ship and tell Dr. Livesey and the others what I had discovered. However, as I reached the edge of the belt of trees and low bushes which fringed the curve of the bay, I looked across at the Hispaniola and froze with surprise. One of the ship's large rowing boats had left the Hispaniola and was heading for the shore, "'It had covered over half the distance "'and was only about two hundred yards from the beach. "'On board I could clearly see Captain Smollett, "'Dr. Livesey, Squire Trelawney, "'and the carpenter's mate, Alexander Gray. "'Each had an oar and were rowing with all their strength. "'The squire's old gamekeeper, Redruth, sat in the stern, "'and the boat was laden with boxes, barrels and other stores.' It seemed clear to me that my friends must somehow have outwitted the six mutineers who had stayed on the Hispaniola and decided to head for shore. But what had happened to the squire's other servants, Joyce and Hunter? I was about to shout out and wave my hands to attract the attention of the boat when I noticed, close to my right, two of the pirates hiding in the long grass. I had my pistol, but if I drew their attention it would be two against one, so I remained silent. At that moment, I heard the thunder of a cannon and an echo bellowed across the bay. I looked across the water to the Hispaniola to see six men clustered around the swivel gun mounted on the foredeck. A tall spout of water rose from close to the side of the rowing boat. The sailors were already reloading the cannon, directed, it seemed, by Israel hands. Meanwhile, my comrades in the boat had not been idle. Captain Smollett passed a musket to the squire, who put it to his shoulder, aimed carefully, and fired at the group on the schooner. He was successful, for one of the men cried out and spun to the deck. Alas, I was not able to watch further, for I reasoned the sound of the cannon shot would surely have roused the rest of the mutineers who had landed. To stay where I was might invite capture. Reluctantly, I turned and walked quickly back away from the shore." The sound of three more cannon shots echoed round the island shortly afterwards, and I could only hope that my friends had escaped without harm. After half an hour or so had passed, I knew that it was time to decide on my next step. I needed to rejoin Squire Trelawney and the rest of my companions, but where would they have gone? It was at that moment that I remembered the diagram of the stockade that I had seen on the treasure map. 
It did not take me long to find the fort. A sturdy log house, surrounded by a wooden fence, its walls pierced by loopholes for muskets. The first thing that I saw when I entered the log house was the body of poor old Tom Redruth laid out against the wall. To my relief, Joyce and Hunter were there. They had occupied the log house earlier that day, together with the squire, Dr. Livesey, and Captain Smollett. Alexander Gray was also present. I was later told that he had left the mutineers to follow his captain. Squire Trelawney pointed to the body of Redruth. "'Shot while we were entering the stockade, but not before we killed one of the pirates. Now, here's our plan. We've got food and water and are safe here. Silver's men want the treasure and are desperate for the map. They'll attack the stockade to get it, and we'll shoot them down like pigeons.' "'We've two other friends in this fight,' Dr. Livesey added. "'Rum and the climate. The pirates have made camp by the lagoon, and I'll swear there's fever there.' "'The attack.' came the next morning. As I peered out of a loophole, I could see a little group of pirates leap from the woods on the north side and run straight for the stockade. The boarders climbed over the fence like monkeys. I fired at the same time as the squire and Gray, and two of the attackers fell inside the clearing. Four more had rushed up the mound and reached the log house. One pirate grasped Hunter's musket by the muzzle, wrenched it from his hands, plucked it through the loophole, and, with a stunning blow, laid the poor fellow senseless on the floor. A second, running unharmed all round the house, appeared suddenly in the doorway and attacked the doctor with his cutlass. Cries and confusion, the flashes and bangs of pistol shots, and one loud groan rang in my ears. "'Out, lads, out, and fight him in the open! Cutlasses!' cried Captain Smollett. I snatched a cutlass from the pile and dashed out of the door into the clear sunlight to find myself face to face with Anderson, the big boatswain. He swung his sword to strike me, and as I dodged out of the way, he was struck down from behind by Grey. Moments later, silence fell over the stockade as the last pirate scrambled back over the wall into the woods, limping as he ran. However, our victory had not come without a cost. Poor Hunter had been struck so hard that he died without regaining consciousness. Joyce had been shot dead by a bullet which had passed through his loophole, and Captain Smollett had been badly wounded in the shoulder by a musket ball. "'He'll recover,' said Dr. Livesey, "'but he must rest for some weeks to come.' As for the mutineers, there were five dead for certain, and at least one wounded— as well as the pirate that Squire Trelawney had shot earlier. We waited cautiously for some time, but their attack was not renewed. As noon approached, Dr. Livesey put two loaded pistols in his pockets, hung a cutlass from his belt, and set off to meet Ben Gunn. A little later, when Squire Trelawney was keeping watch and Gray was keeping Captain Smollett company in the log house, I once again acted rashly. My only excuse was my youth, for my actions were those of a foolish youngster. I decided to leave the enclosure for a few hours to search for the homemade boat which Ben Gunn had told me about, and to sail out to the Hispaniola. Putting a pistol and some ship's biscuits into my pockets, I slipped quietly out of the stockade. All went as I had planned— I had no difficulty in finding Ben Gunn's homemade boat, hidden under some branches behind the white rock, as he had told me earlier. 
Thus, not much more than half an hour later, I found myself offshore paddling towards the Hispaniola. The boat was of a most curious design, being made of goat skins stretched tight over a wooden frame, rather like the coracles used by fishermen in Wales. I observed the deck closely and saw no signs of any of the pirates aboard. I guessed that if I could make certain of this, then the information would prove useful to my friends. I planned to creep aboard as quietly as I could and return to Ben Gunn's boat at the first sign of danger. Luckily for me, some ropes were hanging down the side of the vessel. No doubt after the last of Silver's men had left the ship, I reasoned, and after securing the little boat, I climbed aboard. As soon as I had sight of the main deck, an unexpected sight lay before my eyes. There were two men on deck. One of the mutineers, O'Brien, as I recall, lay on his back, as stiff as a table leg, his arms stretched out on each side like a crucifix, and his teeth showing through his open lips, as clearly dead as any man could be. The other was Israel Hans, Silver's old shipmate. Hans was sitting with his back to the mast, his face deadly pale. There was a great bleeding stab wound in his thigh, and two empty bottles of rum on the deck nearby. "'Is that you, Jim lad?' Hans asked in a low, trembling voice. "'Help me! I can't move! I reckon I'm done for!' I guessed what had happened. Silver must have left Hans and O'Brien to guard the ship, and the two of them had fought after a drunken quarrel. I could hardly refuse his request, so I went below deck and returned with a long silk handkerchief to bind up his wound. When I emerged from the hold, the wounded pirate had vanished. Just in time, I turned around to see him lunging towards me, a dagger held aloft in his hand. I ducked behind the mainmast, and as I did so, Hans lost his balance for a moment. Those few seconds gave me time to draw my pistol from my pocket, and I fired as he thrust towards me yet again. Hans let out a cry and staggered backwards, tumbling over the side of the ship. As the water settled... I could see him lying on the clean, bright sand beneath the sea. I knew what I must do. Report back to Dr. Livesey and the others to tell them that another two of the pirates had died and that the Hispaniola was now unguarded. The currents proved troublesome on my return journey, and by the time I had returned to the stockade, night had already fallen. The first thing that I noticed when I climbed back over the fence was that no one appeared to be on watch, although the embers of a campfire glowed outside the log house. Could my friends have come to harm? I walked through the door and stumbled over a sleeping body. Then came a sound which filled me with fear and amazement. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! And so on, without a pause. It was Silver's green parrot, Captain Flint. Rough hands grabbed me and I realised that I had been captured by the mutineers. There were six of them. Long John Silver, young Dick Johnson, Tom Morgan, George Merry, and two others, one of whom was bandaged around the head. I expected no mercy from the pirates, but Silver made it plain that he wanted to keep me alive. "'Don't be too hasty, my lads,' he said to the others. Young Hawkins here will make a handy hostage when we find the treasure tomorrow morning. I was awake when dawn broke, 
and found that Silver was sitting next to me. In a low voice he explained what had occurred since I had left the log house in search of Ben Gunn's boat. Dr. Livesey and the others had agreed to give him the treasure map. In return, Silver had allowed them to leave the stockade without attacking them. Why had my friends made such a bargain, I wondered. Silver added a further comment. The doctor warned me to beware of trouble when we find the treasure. Well, Jim, if there's to be trouble, I'll look out for you, and perhaps you'll put in a word for me, if need be. We set off late that morning, following the directions in the treasure map. During the journey, I learned why only six of Silver's men remained. In addition to those whose fates I already knew, two others had been killed by Silver when they threatened to return to Captain Smollett's command, and a third had been mysteriously slain while out in the forest. The work of Ben Gunn, I suspected. It did not take the pirates long to locate the tall pine tree at the foot of Spyglass Hill. We hurried excitedly towards it. "'Silver making the best speed that he could on his crutch, "'his faithful parrot clinging tightly to his shoulder. "'We rounded the base of the tree "'to see a large empty hole in the ground. "'A single plank lay in the bottom "'with letters branded on it with a hot iron. "'Walrus, the name of Flint's ship. "'Someone had been here before us, "'and the treasure had gone. "'George Merry rushed furiously towards Silver.' In an instant, Long John had fired a pistol into him, and the pirate fell backwards into the treasure pit. At that moment, Dr. Livesey, Gray, and Ben Gunn appeared out of the edge of the forest and fired their muskets, whereupon the pirate with the bandaged head fell dead upon the ground. The other three mutineers ran off into the trees at the foot of Spyglass Hill. Long John Silver put his hand on my arm and turned towards Dr. Livesey, bowing his head. "'Thank you kindly, Doctor,' he said. "'You came along just in time, I guess, for me and Hawkins. "'I've kept the lad safe, as you can see.' It was plain to all of us that Long John Silver had decided that his best chance of survival lay in abandoning his remaining shipmates and joining our party. At any rate, he returned to the helpful, smiling ways with which we had been familiar on the voyage out to the Caribbean— Perhaps he even hoped that the doctor would put in a word for him and prevent his prosecution for mutiny when we returned to England. It did not take long for Dr. Livesey to explain to me what had occurred since I left the stockade and rode out to the Hispaniola. Ben Gunn had made his way to the stockade where he found the doctor and had told him how he had found the treasure and spent months moving it to a cave on the other side of the island. The doctor then devised a plan. He calculated that if he gave the map to Silver, Silver's men would fight among themselves when they found that the gold was gone. After I had gone missing, however, my friends were thrown into confusion. They hurried to the treasure site, imagining that I might have been captured by the pirates and taken there as a prisoner. Once Dr. Livesey had explained all this to us, we returned to Ben Gunn's cave, where we found Squire Trelawney and Captain Smollett waiting for us. The sight of the treasure made me gasp. Great heaps of gold coins and bars of gold stacked in piles. This was Flint's hoard that we had come so far to seek and that had cost so many lives. Not just the seventeen men from the Hispaniola, 
but countless others over the course of Flint's cruel career. In little more than a week, we had loaded the treasure aboard the Hispaniola. We had no choice but to leave the three remaining mutineers behind on the island, as we could not have guarded them safely on the long voyage home. Captain Smollett plotted a course for the nearest port in Spanish America, where we engaged more crew members, honest fellows this time selected by the captain, and set sail for Bristol. Long John Silver was not amongst us, for he had slipped ashore and vanished, together with a bag of gold coins and his beloved parrot, Captain Flint. Wicked man though he was, I could not help feeling some sympathy at the news of his escape. We had a safe voyage home, and I was finally reunited with my mother. She was delighted to hear of my good fortune. I do not believe that I will go to sea again. The worst dreams that I have are on stormy nights when I start upright in bed with the sharp voice of Captain Flint still ringing in my ears. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Well, I do hope that you enjoyed listening to that reading. It's really great swashbuckling stuff, I think. It was fabulous, wasn't it? We uh, There was an interview uh, with Val McDermott, the crime writer, in a newspaper recently. And they had gave her a load of questions. And one of the questions was, the best book you've ever read. And she picked Treasure Island. She ah. says, so I've got this article here. So it says that it's got, the book has got everything. It's got great characters. Pieces of eight. Not, obviously, <laughs> that's just the non-human characters. But it's a thrilling story, well written. And the great thing about Stevenson, a writer of enormous variety. And she goes on to say that it's a book she goes back to as a primer on how to write a novel. That's really interesting, and I'm just when when it finished on pieces of pieces of eight, there are the two famous lines that say pieces of eight, pieces of eight, and then ah, Jim Possibly those two things will get you through the book if you've forgotten other bits and pieces of the text. <laughs> no, but it's a fa- it's a fabulous book. It's a re- it's a real thriller. I think. I mean, it's it's fantastic, and that was that was obviously a shortened version of it. So if that's mm. inspired you to read the full story. Then please mm. go out and do so. Yeah. Well, I, I've got. In fact, it's by my bedside. I I uh, dug it out from the shelves as a as a copy that my father used to read to us as children, and it's actually an interesting edition because it's actually illustrated. Oh, right. um, so it's it, it's 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 the full text, but some very very great black and white mm. illustrations. So it was really quite uh, something. And and I remember um, when when we got to the point where um, uh, we first get to to meet Ben Gunn. Yes. Well, in the picture, they're so cleverly um, drawn. This dark, shady figure, so loping in 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 the background after Jim. And you know, you you put the willies up me when I was a boy because it was really so good. And it was and that book, but that particular edition, I loved so much. Yeah. And I still got it. But I think Treasure Island has got has everything. I think our knowledge of pirates basically comes down from 
to Treasure Island, doesn't it? Mm. It's the, I, think, well, I think so, yes. The island, yes. and uh, yeah, so it's Pirates of the Caribbean. Where would that be without Treasure Island? <laughs> very true, very true. Yes, because it's all of the elements, isn't it? There's there's um, uh, the buried treasure, there's the castaway, there's um, there's gunfights, there's everything else. Yeah, there's the, the treasure the map with the X marks. Yes, yes, exactly. And and the talking parrot. Yes. I mean, what more could you want? <laughs> what more could you want, indeed? Now, of course, as Mike was saying earlier, Robert Louis Stevenson didn't just write Treasure Island. He wrote yeah. um, Kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Yes, and yes, and considering that you know that um, maybe within within his day and in a time um, time frame, but mm. you know when you think of kidnapped, um, quite quite a dramatic story in its way. And then Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and quite an amazing yeah. um, science um, fiction book, really in a yes. way, isn't it? Medical science fiction. Yeah, you know, it's a fantastic imagination. And on top of it, and I know we always have a bit of a giggle of this, but but lend themselves so well to to film, you know, so atmospheric as well. And yeah. you know, but he was just—I mean, it was just incredible the range of of, of his stories. I mean, I, I must admit, I, I do rather like kidnapped. I mean, when you when you're um, you're dealing with the um, the legal authorities in Edinburgh, and um, uh, it, uh, yeah, but just a, an amazing author. Do you know? I've never read kidnapped. So I, I've, now mm. I've read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm. and Treasure Island, but not take, not kidnapped. Because, mm. um, yes, there's, there's a, the Lord Advocate and there's all the intriguing going on. Uh, and, you know, it's well, it's, well worth, yeah. it's well worth reading. It really is good. But what's really interesting is this family, of course, we've talked about the Lighthouse Stevensons in the past. Mm. So there's a great book on that. But they weren't anything to do with literature or writing. So how they had this sort of cuckoo in the nest with this amazing brain of mm. uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. And thank goodness he didn't go into... Uh, building lighthouses around the, business, the um, yes, yeah, exactly, yes, around the Scottish coast, yeah. yeah. Um, but but obviously drew a great deal of um, from that experience of the family business to to um, write his his books, yeah. certainly with Treasure Island, yes, yeah, certainly um, with an island. Yeah. I think was one of the islands yeah. that he yeah. was he had to go and um, build a lighthouse on. Mm. Um, I think inspired him. For the for the island in Treasure Island, so. Mm-hmm. or so they say, anyway. Or so they say, indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I understand that um, Disney um, did Pirates of the Caribbean based on a nineteen fifties um, adventure park that was based on the book. So oh, in the nineteen fifties. Disney presumably built an adventure park, a Treasure Island adventure park, and took all those elements that they read from Kidnapped. And then that inspired the um, Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Right. I, I, very interesting. Yes. And, and, and you can see sort of other elements in there, which is the, you know, the, which is the, the ghost monkey in Pirates of the, uh, of the Caribbean. And, and I think there's some other, some squawking bird as well. And so obviously they've used those elements yes. from um, Robert Louis Stevenson's book um, and uh, brought it, well, I don't yeah. know if you can say exactly up to date, but you know what I mean? Because um, considering it's 
set in the same time period so uh, yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely well i think i've got to say i think uh real reads are a delightful way of introducing children and adults to that world of classical storytelling yes exactly i think so and also i mean and, and let's uh, let's be quite candid about it i mean they're very good primers you know for yeah. for, for anybody who needs to, to to have a bit of a crash course in that you absolutely. know um so, me amongst you know, gives, them <laughs> yeah but exactly you know it's it's sort of, um, you know, as, as 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 Mike was saying in the interview, they're not condensed. I mean, they're rewritten, yeah. but they're but they're essentially the the essence of the original book, and that will give you the taste to go on Absolutely. to um, um, to to read the full yeah. uh, version. Yeah. So, mm. books we're moving swiftly on ourselves. So, yes. books we are recommending today. So, Tom Swift and his Electric Rifle, published by Pinnacle Press. And then we have Edna O'Brien, Country Girls, and her most recent book, Girl, both published by Faber and Faber, Faber and Faber, I beg your pardon. And anyone out there with a print um, disability or a sight disability or whatever, this title is available free of charge from Calibre Audio. So Jack Absolute by Chris Humphreys, billed as the 007 of the 1770s and published by Orion. The Retelling of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson is available by Real Reads as an audiobook and by the Baker Street Press in a 64-page printed book. Now, all these books that we're recommending today are available at your local bookshops and they'd only be too delighted for you to order them if they are not in stock. And many, many thanks to our guest, Mike Brown, and also many thanks to his splendid team behind Real Reads and Baker Street Press, who produce the audio versions of this, these retellings, uh, of the retelling that we heard today particularly, and all of the others too. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening to Telling Pages on River Radio. We hope you enjoyed the programme and look forward to you joining us next week. Thanks 